Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Drancer, a promising start to the Canucks road trip, ends with a bit of a thud in Game 4. It was a daunting task trying to get through all four of them. In most cases, you'd feel good about getting five of eight points, but given where the Canucks are, they probably are a little bit uh, owly after that last loss as we get into our next episode of the VanCast. Not a live room. We seem to have been doing a lot of those, and we certainly will get back to that later in the week, but uh, a tough one last night for the visitors. Yeah, I thought so. I thought they were clearly the second-best team all night. And, you know, I had people pushing back. They were dominant in the second period. It's like, okay, I I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, they were down two. So you'd expect them to carry play. And I think they had eight straight shots to open the period. But other than the Tanner Pearson chance on the doorstep after the Garland rebound, like, I don't know that there's anything from the first half of the second period that stands out to me. And the Blues kept generating right throughout throughout it all even though it was a little bit against the grain and the Canucks had the majority of the puck, like there was that boost Nevich backhand. That was a phenomenal save by Halak. There was, you know, some really good chances in tight for St. Louis's fourth line. Um, Canucks had a decent pod Colson chance uh, off a feed from chase on. There was that Miller chance where he sprung the breakout. That was a beautiful pass. And then, and then managed to get to the rebound, uh, you know, 150 feet away. I liked that play. And then Pedersen hits the post, you know, sort of trying to tuck it in between Huso's legs and very nearly did. But I mean, the Blues had four or five really good chances that period. The Canucks had four or five really good chances that period. And then the underlying numbers will say the Canucks had more. And I suppose they did, but they weren't that same quality, you know, so. Well, that first power play alone, I mean, two great eight chances from St. Louis coming back the other way. And the Canucks didn't have any on that one. Totally. So, yeah, I mean, I just didn't see it as a. I certainly didn't see it as a dominant period. Um, you know, Canucks were playing their fourth and sixth, and there was a lot of travel on this road trip, right? This was a really, uh, like, grueling trip. I, I bet it was a, you know, eyes-wide-open moment for Bruce Boudreaux, right, <laughs> who's who's sort of relatively new to the West. But, you know, Denver, Minneapolis, D- uh, Dallas, Texas, and then St. Louis, like, none of those places are close together. That's a two-and-a-half-hour flight every time. Um, and you play four and six. Canucks did really well. It was a fantastic road trip. It's just that it's not enough at this point in the season. And so they come back from a road trip. I believe they set out with 8% playoff odds when they left and they come back at 11%, right? So it's like the risk was that it ended your season. It didn't, but it also wasn't a season saving road trip, right? It was, it was enough. It was enough to tread water, but that's all that, that's all that was accomplished despite some really impressive performances in, in Texas, Denver, and Minneapolis. And we we established, what, 96 as the number that they would need to feel comfortable about their chances? Yeah, 95, 96 is sort of the, the typical thing we use, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, if you're, if you're looking at, at 96, um, 
you know, Vancouver needs 23 more points in their final 14 games, right? So that's, uh, what is that, 11, 2, and 1. That's that's pretty tall order right now. 100% it is. It's really tough. And, and it, I mean, that's, you know, you <laughs> what, can you afford two, two more losses? Something like that? Two more losses? So every week could be the last week of your season. And every time you win, you're just staving that off. Right. And and look, it, it could get real if the Canucks can reel off. They have 14 left, 12 and two, 11 and 11, two and one, something like that. But it's a really tall order. It's a really unfair spot to be with how well they're playing. And, and this road trip sort of epitomized it where you come out and you beat Colorado. You hang tough against Minnesota. Really could have won that game if you don't hit a post. Um, beat Dallas pretty handily and then lose to the Blues. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, man, you know, one in ten. You're back to being a one in ten shot, and what something like eleventh in the in the West. So they're you know they're they are where they are. This is why we've been talking about this being so improbable all season. Even with as well as they've played, they've they're really still just on the fringes of the playoff picture, and instead of being even in the middle of the fight. Yeah, in most other cities, the line would probably be crossed at ten when they do their local newscasts. But uh, uh, here in Vancouver, we've got it at eleven, and we'll just we'll go through it real quick because they do have. After this game against St. Louis, they've got a couple of games against Vegas coming up, which is really important. And right now, Vegas is technically in eighth in that final playoff spot, but really they're in ninth because based on winning percentage, Dallas is ahead of them as well right now. So as far as the Canucks are concerned, Vegas and Vancouver have played the same number of games, and Vegas is a three-point lead. So when you play Vegas... Plus the tiebreaker. Plus the tiebreaker. But you're playing Vegas three times coming up in the next week and a half. So you do feel like you've got your destiny in your own hands, right? Like if they can get through St. Louis... And then all of a sudden win a pair of games against Vegas, you know, you're, you're ahead of Vegas at that point and you feel pretty good about it just based on the optics of it. But in reality, you look at Dallas, who's sitting in ninth spot right now, and they've got a 586 winning percentage. They've got four games in hand on Vancouver and a two point lead in the standings. Uh, you've also got Winnipeg. Uh, Winnipeg has one game in hand on Vancouver. They're one point ahead. And then, you know, like if you want to look ahead at Edmonton, Edmonton's got one game in hand on the Canucks and they're six points ahead, right? So whether you look at it from a divisional standpoint or a uh, or a conference standpoint, it's it's going to be tough, right? So, and again, they're in a position that yep. if they can win these next three games, the math will look good, but it'll be a little harder than the math looks at that point, right? And, well, the, and, the cha- and But it requires you to win three really hard games. I mean, the Blues are not a good matchup for Vancouver anymore, I don't think. it's it, The Blues are faster than they've been, and they're deeper, and they're not quite as reliant on the physical bullying style as they used to be. I think they've sort of begun to take on the identity of of that that Cairo line as opposed to the ROR line you know and you sort of look through how they played they weren't great but they just played they played like Vancouver they played this sort of professional game leaning on great goaltending and opportunistic finishing and i think it's like a mirror image battle i think that's a tough one for Vancouver particularly because the blues are better built and deeper you know you look at that fourth line that Nathan Walker uh, McEwen Torpchenko line and it's like they were buzzing all night I didn't think Vancouver had nearly that much push like there was one nice Will Lockwood chance in the first period but I don't think Vancouver had anything really notable chance wise from their bottom six and you know you think about what St. Louis's ostensible third line did even though it was really the ROR line that they used as their third line last night but that 
Tarasenko line just crushed them. Just crushed them. That was by far St. Louis's best line of the night. Vancouver made too many mistakes. St. Louis was too smart, too savvy. They came out. They pretty. I mean, it was a handy win. It was a. It, they won it handily. And so you know that it's if you squint and assume that the Canucks will win a bunch of games in regulation, then the math begins to look okay. But the fact is, is that the Blues are a really tough opponent. The Golden Knights two in a row is a tough opponent. Then you've got Arizona on the second leg of a back-to-back. Not not a super easy game, uh, all things considered. And you've got, you know, you've got the fact that, yeah, sure, you beat, say you beat Vegas twice. Vegas isn't the team you're chasing. Vegas is a playoff long shot, too. Like, if you beat Vegas twice, you end their playoff hopes. But it that even, even that's insufficient to strengthen yours. The The most important win that they had, for example, was the win over Dallas. And it wasn't an essential win because of what it did for them in terms of giving them two points. It was an essential win because they denied Dallas any, right? And at this point, it's really about whether Dallas hiccups and opens the door for anybody. And then if that happens, maybe Vancouver can scramble over Winnipeg and, and Vegas. But but the first thing that needs to occur, like the, the Dallas's fate is very much in their own hands. Looks like they're getting Miro Haskin in back tonight. I don't love that team, to be clear. I don't love that team, but they've got a really soft schedule coming up for the next two weeks. And more than how Vancouver performs, like, yeah, if they lose three in a row, sure, it's over. But more than how Vancouver performs, it's Dallas's fate in their own hands over the next two weeks that's going to decide this. Yeah, no question. And, you know, when, when you look at it, I mean, they've got the Blues coming up. When they played earlier in the season and the Blues were on more of a roll at that point in Vancouver... The Canucks were unfortunate to lose that game. I mean, they were they outplayed the Blues. They they certainly outshot them. I think almost two to one. and wound up losing that game. Um, so you know they, and if you you know you, they may look at it and say, well, we were just a couple of bad bounces away. That might be a little bit fictional because the the first and third goals in this one were were unfortunate bounces in terms of how they actually wound up in the net. But they came at the end of extended pressure shifts by the blues. But, you know, if you feel, if you feel you're going to be a little bit better, you know, based on the the game that you played against them earlier, maybe, but either way, like you look at it in short term uh, bits right now. And if they can get past this game, then for the two games against Vegas, at least optically, you're probably not scoreboard watching, right? Like you might have one eye on Dallas, but you're not going to heavily scoreboard watch because that's the team directly in front of you in the standings, even though, again, based on point percentage, they're they're not the team. Dallas is the team that you want to beat, right? Like, I mean, Winnipeg's right there with them, both in terms of games played and points, right? Um, you know, you don't look at that as a, as a daunting task. But bottom line is, right, like 11-2-1 is what they would need to go the rest of the way in order to feel safe. And... That's a tall task. And when you look at it afterwards, some of the players were asked about this, just the emotional challenge. They've been at this pace since Bruce Boudreaux got hired, right? Like they've been on playoff runs. Think about it, right? Like you've got to win four of seven to win a playoff series. And the Canucks have needed to win four of six, sometimes four of five to be remotely relevant right now. The word remote is the key one because it's still where they're at. Yeah, I know, I know. But like, look, emotionally, it is so difficult to have to play two to three months of playoff hockey before the playoffs. It, it is, but on the other hand, it's so much more difficult to be on a death march going nowhere. No question. Like at least, but I'm at just least saying the guys was... are up for these games. You know, like they're excited. They, they're they happy to be in this spot rather than playing out the string, and they should be. 
And, you know, they weren't happy with themselves last night. Like I thought JT Miller talking about the third goal, the Tarasenko goal. And yeah, Tarasenko, it was a lucky finish. But if Tarasenko is in front of your net with time to count five steamboats before a checker can arrive to him, it's not a lucky goal. Like that's a defensive breakdown. JT Miller called his puck watching on that play selfish. That was self-described selfish um, and said, you know, he just lost him. He just lost him. It was on him. He tapped his chest twice, right? Like on me. And so, you know, uh, yeah, the, the second goal or the first goal, by the way, we don't really have a word for what a goal like that is. And I want to I want to suggest to you that it's called a bald spot goal. OK, I have one of those. <laughs> me too. Uh, in fact, I don't have I don't have a hair spot. But the um, it's a bald spot goal because the moment it's scored, everyone on both benches is looking down at the ground at the monitor. <laughs> so it's a bald spot goal. That's <laughs> that's my that's my suggestion for one of those weirdo like the Chicago Blackhawks won their game on a bald spot goal. Like what? What happened? Um, and then so they get the bald spot goal was lucky. But the third Tarasenko goal, that was a true breakdown, a true breakdown. And yeah, he gets a second whack. That's fortunate. But really, you're on. You're fortunate to, that he doesn't score there. You know, like it. You're. That's a. That's a thirty percent chance right there. That's not unlucky when you get burned on that. That's well. What was, what was impressive to me is that for Miller saying that. Okay, I lost him. At the same time, Miller turned and had a swing at the puck. And most times, an NHL player can at least get more of a piece of the puck. He actually did graze it, and yet it didn't affect Tarasenko's ability to get all of it and score. He had a great game. He had a really great game. That line was buzzing all night. And that shift was clinical. And to come at the start of the third period, you know, the Canucks are talking for sure for 15 minutes about the push they need early and the Blues. And this is partly what I'm talking about with the Blues being the significantly better team. Like, the you know, with 20 minutes to play two, down to nothing, you're not done. You're not, you know, like you get one, all of a sudden it's a close game and the Blues just all just... They came out and they just completely strangled the, any chance of a Canucks comeback in its cradle. And and that's what a decisive win looks like. You know, I, I know what the underlying numbers look like. Everyone knows I weight the underlying numbers. And I, I just didn't think that the shot clock or the flow of play told the story in that game. The Blues were materially better through 60 minutes than the Canucks. And the result of that game was never significantly in doubt uh, for me. Before we go to break, I do want to ask you just your thoughts on, on Yaro Halak, right? Because um, the fact that he was playing his second, he got a second start in three games after a really impressive performance against Denver, you know, and that was a game that was kind of a, you know, a lot of us thought it was a bit of a mail-in game, right? That that was the one game they weren't going to win. So why not just throw him out there? And, you know, sure enough, with everything stacked against him, you wound up put, putting in a pretty impressive performance enough to earn another start here and and lived up to it as well because you, you can't really blame him on any of those goals. Two bad bounces and, and a big-time shot by David Perron last night. Yeah, I thought he was good. I legitimately thought he was good. I thought, you know, yeah, there's some goals. Yeah, he had some big stops. Honestly, the Busnevich backhand stop that he made in the second was probably his best of the night. Um, yeah, I thought Halak was solid, really good. And they're going to need him again. Maybe in the next three. I mean, if you win against St. Louis on on Wednesday and you win against Vegas on the weekend, right? Do you consider going Halak against Vegas in Vegas and Demko against Arizona with the idea that, you know, you take your you take your best shot at getting the four game four point sweep 
right? Because if you lose to Vegas in that game and then you lose to Arizona with your backup in net, that's your season. That's it. Even though you've done all this good work in the week leading up to it. Um, do you consider that? I think you have to consider that. Yeah, and, you do. And, and, and some at the very least, you're not scared of it anymore. No, and and what Boudreaux talked about, you know, we wanted him, we wanted the Blues to face two different goaltenders this week. You know, that suggests to me that he might do the same thing next week with the with Vegas. So, um, yeah, I mean, Halak's going to play for sure one more of the next four that the Canucks play, and so you know that sounds to me like roughly the pace the team should be aiming for. Like Halak should probably play three more games over the balance of the season. And I think they have roughly that number of back-to-backs. So uh, it's going to be very interesting. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Drancher, while we're on the topic of goaltending, let's talk about Thatcher Demko, who was fabulous in his last start. You know, and he talked after the game about, you know, the last couple of games have had some weird bounces that have been, uh, you know, that have been going in. But it's the first time we've heard from Thatcher Demko in some time. By my recollection, it's been around three weeks because, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but on the seven-game homestand, he didn't talk after, you know, they, they didn't do well. He didn't talk after losses. The two wins they had, he gave up three goals in both, so he didn't talk there, didn't practice much, so wasn't available after practices he didn't attend, and didn't do morning skates availabilities because we've got this silly rule, the NHL. It's not a rule. It's just sort of a practice the NHL has where goaltenders don't talk. And he would, he'd been requested some, a few some times. Teams. Some teams. Some teams. Uh, certainly the Canadian teams feel that way. Um, yeah. So, you know, he hasn't spoken. Uh, he's certainly been requested and hasn't spoken. Um, we've been told at various times that, you know, he's been tired or he's been in treatment. And, you know, you ac- accept a lot of that to a point. Um, for me, three weeks was still excessive, regardless of the circumstances. I think they needed to find a way to make him available. Um, when he talked after the the last game, you know, he said that, yeah, you guys have been, he said on two occasions, once to your question and once I think to, to somebody else's on Zoom, that, yeah, you guys talk a lot about the schedule and rest. Well, I got news for you. The head coach talks about it a lot too. Uh, what did you make of his reaction? Certainly the performance was very good, but A, you know, his reaction and and just also the impact of his decreased usage. And when I say decreased, he's, you know, after those back-to-backs in the homestand where it didn't go well, they've now made an effort to give him not just one, but in some cases two days off between starts so that he can have a complete day off before getting a little bit of work in. Yeah, I think the fact is that rest matters a ton in goaltender performance. And yet a goaltender who's relied on to play a lot of games needs to have the mentality that that it doesn't, that they can excel whether they feel 100% or not. And so, you know, I thought that was a window into that more than anything. Thatcher Demko is a very bright guy, and I'm sure he understands the importance of load maintenance. I, I know that Ian Clark does, so I think his, you guys talk about it, but it's not an issue for us. I mean, that's not likely to be wholly true, But I think it's a true insight into his viewpoint of it, which is that no matter how I feel, it's on me to go out and perform well. 
to go out and win games. And so that's all I kind of took from it, to be totally honest with you. I, I don't think he's objecting to anything we're saying. Um, I don't think he's... He, is, he was trying to dismiss it, though. He was dismissing it, but you know what I'm saying. Like, I yeah. think the dismissal is less fact-based and more mentality-based. You know, the, the mind space that he has to a- 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 live in at the moment is that it doesn't matter. And so, you know, despite the way the club has used the goalies over the past two weeks and, and what I think we're likely to see over the balance, I think it's important that he have that mentality. So I, I didn't begrudge him it by any means. Um, but, you know, I, I did think that uh, I did think that it was a long time to go between speaking. And, and yet, you know, I also thought that Dallas performance was outrageous, like yep. in, in, it just completely off the charts. Good in terms of the stops that he made, and particularly on that sequence and the scorpion kick goal, and then he reprised it in St. Louis during the morning skate and Rob Brock Besser, and they were like, oh, and gave each other a big hug, and it was quite a funny moment. Um, I mean, Demko's outrageously good. He is so, so good. And I'm sure, this being his first season as a workhorse starter, that it is also, you know, that he's not feeling 100%, typically speaking, on game days. And yet, he goes out there and he keeps playing the way that he's playing, the way that he played in Minnesota, the way that he played in Dallas. And, you know, there, there's not much to criticize there. He is so good. He is, he's becoming so good. And goaltending performance is really volatile. We'll see, you know, no, the Canucks are first in the NHL by, say, percentage of five on five. They were like 960 plus on the road trip, even with, uh, even with a four-goal game against the Blues. Teams don't typically repeat that. Like even teams with the best goaltending in the league don't typically go number one in the NHL year after year. It's not something that teams sustain. So you'd expect the Canucks to regress a little bit in terms of their save percentage as the sample expands into next season. But Demko looks to me to be a, a really safe bet at this point to be at least above average, maybe top 10, maybe top five. He's certainly been top five this year. And, you know, that's a huge luxury. I mean, that's a huge luxury for this team. It's it's you know something that gives them something of an identity, something of a Rangers West outlook going forward. And you know, is probably your best bet and quickest route to building a really good team in a couple of years as opposed to three or four uh you know from a Vancouver perspective. So um I didn't really object to him dismissing my question. I didn't think it was a huge deal and I, and I thought the way that I read it anyway or the way that I interpreted it was more a mindset answer than a, um, you know, than a than a really super factual one. And then PJ, of course, came over the top. I don't think he was on the Zoom when I first asked it, or maybe he didn't hear my question. He asked the exact same question and yeah, got a far there, better been answer there before on the other side of that. I know you have, and, and but he got a far better answer the second time he asked it. Which oh, was, but he said the same thing to him that you guys are, you know, you guys talk did. about it a lot. He, well, he specifically said, you know, like I just said to Drancer, you guys talk about it a lot. But and then he gave a much more thorough and interesting answer. So, you know, I, I think um, I think if Thatcher's dismissive in the future, we should just ask him the same question again. And we'll get the better answer <laughs> and get the better but, answer. But, and you know, secondly, the other, thing that, the other thing I took from it is, is he did admit that there have been some awkward goals or, you know, strange goals was his word that have gone in of late. And, and that is the truth right now. This is not me saying Thatcher Demko has been playing poorly because that would be ludicrous for me to suggest that. But even Bruce Boudreaux, you know, has has talked about it. And so, you know, he's kind of gone from incredible or unbelievable to merely good for a couple of weeks. Right. Leading up to that Dallas or uh, leading up to the uh, the Minnesota game. Right. Like he like I said, again, 
uh, good, just not outerworldly. And the club, as we've shown in the past, as you pointed out with the numbers, kind of need outerworldly play. But there's been those. And when you when goals squeak through you and you're not as tight, sometimes it is the result of fatigue. You know, and, and that, yeah. that's, that's well, kind of how I've seen his play, that he's been overused. And as yeah. a result, there's just been the the odd gap. He hasn't been out of position or anything like that, right? For me, there's also been kind of, sometimes it's been a rebound issue that maybe the rebound control hasn't been there uh, as much. And it, it might be a little more difficult to direct pucks where you want him to go as opposed to just react and making the initial save. You know, just a few of those types of things that might be fatigue related. Because again, hasn't been bad, just hasn't been outerworldly for a couple of weeks leading up to this trip. Yeah, well, and I'd also add that, like, there's so much that goes into making, you know, 96 of 100 saves, right? That, <laughs> yeah, that uh, inevitably, you know, your next 100 might be 90, it might be 94, right? And it might be 89, and 89 is not acceptable, but it's only seven extra saves over 100 shots, and you don't really control that, you know, as a goaltender, as a team, like, Sometimes the puck bounces weirdly. Sometimes, like, there's so much ephemeral stuff that occurs, you know, which is why, despite the fact that hockey is a free-flowing game, you you can understand where regression is likely to come from if you have a sense of the the relatively fixed percentages, right? Like, that's the whole that's the whole way we model hockey is is based off of that unpredictability and and off the fact that the margins are so thin, and so. You know, it, it's hard for me to say conclusively that I think it was fatigue, although I'm sure it was a factor, because also sometimes it's just over the next hundred shots you face three extra pucks bounce weirdly or settle randomly right in the slot. And there's nothing you can do. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, man, there's a cup. There's, you know, he he's only he's only got a nine, ten save percentage the last three games. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> does that really tell us what we think it tells us? Right. Sure. I, I think there's a temptation and something that I'm always sort of really conscious of, obviously, uh, in in analyzing that. I, I think Demko's, I think Demko's bound to come down a little bit five on five. Like I think he was always bound to come down a little bit, just because the the months of dominance that he we've seen him put them together now with some regularity. But the number, listen, I'm, not, I'm not questioning no, no, the numbers. But, but one second, one second, one second. I know you're not. I know you're not. I'm just saying Demko seems to have this ability to get dialed in at an outrageous extent and have like weeks and months of absolutely dominant stretches where it feels like it. you require the opponents require something so, so special to beat him. I and guess, that's awesome. But, but the that's the point used to have those too. But, but what I'm saying is what I'm saying is when those come down to earth, it could be fatigue, right? But it also can just be it's impossible for any goaltender at a level at this level, right? Facing NHL shooters to sustain that level of performance like that. That baseline that Demko hits where he goes months at a time at 950. Like that's not a reasonable expectation for him over 50, 55 starts a year. You know, it's just not it's it, there's no way I I believe that he has an ability to get particularly dialed. I, I think there's um. You know, uh, uh, it's worth putting in the effort to make sure you get one of those runs one spring because it could make a huge difference for this franchise. But I, uh, I also don't think that's like the level at which you can expect him to be always. If that but makes what, sense. But my point in it all, and and you're right about all of that. 
but it's the expected goals, right? So it's not that he's giving up more goals because you're right. The numbers were not sustainable. There's going to be those months and, and all of that. It's just more the type of goal is, is my point, right? Like the numbers are still, are still good right. and, and they were going to come to earth, but it's the type of goal. So I do know that the expected goal number has had changed a little bit for him during that period of time um, on some of the other information that Woodley had put out. And, you know, so so that's what I mean. It's not just that you're allowing them. It's just that he himself admitted strange, right? And some might look at them and say, yeah, that was kind of okay. Like we'd look at each other in the press box saying, yeah, he probably wishes he had that one back, right? As opposed to simply being a goal, right? And I know that's kind of an eye test argument, but I, I'm not questioning the numbers because yeah, they were going to regress. It was just a case of the type of goal that's beating him as opposed to just the fact that goals are beating him. And again, I'm not saying he's playing poorly. I just think it might be the result of fatigue that when you've got a few more gaps and, and you're, you're not as tight that, uh, that those types of, of things can happen. But I mean, you know, like you said, he had the ability to dial it in. And I think that two day off wherever possible, I think is a, a really good thing. And you're going to get those times in the schedule when you've got an elite goaltender, you just can't do that too. But if you ever want a bubble Demko playoff performance, if this team ever gets into the playoffs, you better not grind him down the stretch every second no. night. Right? Keep like you need fresh. to find a way to give him a chance to just catch his breath a little bit before the playoffs, and then you can get that Minnesota-type performance. Well, and I I mean, the way that the cap is structured for this team, too, you're definitely going to be leaning on Spencer Martin next season, right? So, uh, I, I mean, I think Spencer Martin or, or Mike DiPietro, and I'd say Spencer Martin, based on recent usage in Abbotsford, is is clear. Well, I, I know this. Like, I know that he's the heir apparent at this point because they have to go cheap with the backup next season. So you're going to be looking at giving Spencer Martin a fair bit of run next year. Um, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy. And, and partly that's baked in, too, because of the Halak bonus. And Halak hasn't been at the level, at least in terms, he, he mostly has, aside from two starts. But the two starts were so cataclysmic that they've changed how this team used Demko. And I do think he was overextended for a little bit there. And now we've done exactly what he told us we'd do and talked about his usage for for 15 minutes so again Demko's a smart guy uh one thing I want to bring up I want to bring up one thing that I was told while I was in St. Louis by a smart hockey guy and he said he said to me we were talking about the Canucks playoff chances and I and he said to me the Canucks are you know it's a it's mortally fated that the Canucks will hit 90 points exactly like that was always this team's destiny <laughs> and I thought that was perfect so well put right just like the most painful way for this season to go and end, right? Not bad enough to get a good pick, not good enough that they'll be in it so that like that Edmonton Oilers game matters 90 points, just 90 points, which is like yeah. you're never making the playoffs with that, but you're never missing by by wide enough to benefit from it. Yeah, it's, it's the mucky just middle. Like, it's, it's where it's, you don't want to be. And, and, you know, he said it I, and I just laughed and I thought that's so perfect. That's so perfect. Of course, that would require 17 points for the Canucks from their final 14 games. So that's, you know, it's a pretty good record. I mean, we're talking about like seven wins in 14, you know, maybe four losses, three overtime losses, right? That seven, four and three is not a bad record, right? Seven, four and three, that would get them to 90 points. And he said, that's mortally faded. The Canucks will get 90 points this season. That was always this team's destiny. Wow. And I just thought, and I just thought, how well put is that? That's so funny. I, I it just immediately made sense to me, right? Because the point about that we've been talking about about the poor construction, about the all in, like all of that, was never about this team being absolutely terrible. Although I did for a moment indulge that thought in October and November, especially with the PK going the way it did. 
it's more about the fact that you've built this win now team you know two first round picks traded to con- to construct this team consecutive first round picks tons of money taken on you know with with long term ramifications for this club and you've built a team that you know at this point is going to need 7 4 and 3 to go get to 90 points and that this and and the thought that this was always this team's destiny i i just thought you know right on the nose it just made me laugh and i just thought that's exactly right like that's exactly right that gets us to the end of the season in the most painful way for all involved and um and that's what this team was basically constructed to do so look yeah, I'm not, you're, you're 18th right so think of where you are in the draft yeah i mean and i don't want to i don't want to say this this isn't my prediction this was a this was a commentary from a smart hockey guy that just made me laugh maniac and, maniacal um, laugh Thank uh, you, uh, an absolute maniacal laugh i was just like i'd never thought of it that way that seems dead on to me uh and and you know for me that's not good enough no it isn't uh the show we hope is good enough we're going to take a quick break when we come back i want to get into bruce boudreaux's comments about connor garland he wasn't very good tonight says bruce boudreaux on connor garland and you know we, we've talked a little bit about garland's numbers and his his usage and and you know the bottom line and i know that his five on five production has been very good relative to canuck standards but that bar is low and for a guy that has the puck as much as he does, to have the work rate that he does, that is as noticeable as he is, for him to be sitting on 14 goals, like, that's just not good enough. And, you know, he's getting more run in the top six, right, uh, based on what's left of the lineup right now. And But I was surprised that Boudreaux went as far as he did in his comments post game. What do you make of it? I mean, I didn't think he had a good game at all, to be clear. And I thought the giveaway to Barbashev was bad. Yeah. Barbashev telegraphed it from a long way away, right? That he, he was coming. To move. Yeah. He, well, if you, if you go watch the highlight, Barbashev looks, sees where Garland is going, sees that he's about to get the puck, and he waits. He like doesn't move or, or rush to the middle of the ice at all. He waits knowing exactly what a player who, granted, he played with for two seasons in the QMJHL. They were line mates. He knows him pretty well, right? Like, Barbashev knows Garland pretty well, and that's sort of an underrated thing. But if you go watch the highlight, Barbashev watches the play. He's sort of, like, beat, right? It's his turnover. He's kind of beat. The puck goes back to the middle of the ice. Barbashev at no point leaves the wall and he's recovered and he's tracking the play and you can watch him and he sees Garland and he sees the where the puck is and he sees the puck go to Garland and then he moves like he he telegraphed it he knew exactly what he was doing and first of all Barbashev's a really good defensive player like a really good penalty killer a really assertive physical player it was a smart play he knew Garland really well right there's a lot more going on there than just a bad giveaway but it was still a really bad giveaway, and Barbashev tell, knew it. Knew it was coming from, you know, a solidly like a second and a half away. And and in terms of being able to make that read and process it, that's a that's a lifetime in the NHL. So it was a bad play, and I think you can see Garland as he skated off the ice. Um, you know, he took a wide loop back, skated up the ice. He saw the goal get scored, and you saw him hit his stick on the ice. And from there on, he played frustrated. He played frustrated the whole game. Now, well, and he had a penalty he, before that too, right? Right. And I think he missed a couple shifts with the Miller line thereafter. So, you know, not great. Not a, not a great sequence for for Garland by any means. And then I I think he got into and started playing that type of game that a player sometimes plays when they start pressing, um, like when they're when they know they've played poorly and they don't want that to have been the case, and so they start 
chasing the game instead of letting it come to them. And then you're in trouble, right? And then you start to make like some tough giveaways and things start to go against you. And that's sort of where I think Garland ended up there in that game. And it didn't look good by any means. Like it really did not look good. Um, it was a bad game for him, a really tough one. And, you know, he needs to be better than that. He, they need him. They need him to be better than that, particularly when he's on JT Miller's wing. Now, that Pearson, JT Miller, Connor Garland line has played really well on this road trip. Garland is goalless in his last 16 games, but, you know, he's like second on the team among regulars over the stretch of games that he's gone scoreless behind only Niels Hoaglander in terms of his shot rate. He's got a 96 PDO. <laughs> like he's been really unlucky at both ends of the ice. You know, I don't think the last 15 games is representative of who Garland is. I still like the player a ton. I think highly of him. Um, you know, but but he does need to be better. They need off. They need a bottom line from him, uh, and they definitely need him to play like more safely, more simplistically, more of a team game, particularly when he's on that line with JT Miller. It's one thing if you've got him on a third line and you're asking him to kind of drive it offensively. It's another when he's on the on a line with Miller and Pearson. You need a different type of game from him in those situations. And I, I just felt like he didn't play that game nearly well enough against St. Louis. Yeah, Boudreaux talked about him using his teammates, and that's kind of been a bit of a theme. You know, we, we know him for the spin cycle game and everything like that, and it, it tends to become a bit of an individual game. And not like he's trying to score every time, but he's trying to beat one extra. He's trying to create, hold on to it a little longer before he can move it to somebody. And you get the sense that they're not all sure how to play with him. And, you know, when I look at both he and Jason Dickinson, like it just, it's it's Nate Schmidt all over again, right? Um in turn, and I mean Dickinson's a little different because he's just been invisible. Whereas with you know with Schmidt a year ago, it was you know you notice the highs, you notice the lows, you notice the frustration, and I just see the parallels with with Garland that a lot was expected. He he seemed to be such a good fit when he was acquired, and it just hasn't been a fit. I think Garland's had a much better time in Vancouver though. He may have because he's actually had the opportunity from, to do that. From, like from what I under from what I understand behind the scenes, though, I think Garland's really taken to the city and stuff. So I don't think it's I, could, quite, I could read I could read that a lot of different ways. But it's no 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 like not but, like that like no, it's, an, under, it's not fairness, analogous. Right? Like, but it but it's not analogous behind the scenes is all I'm saying. Like I had a sense that Nate Schmidt was deeply unhappy by midseason last year. Um, you know, well, he was, Schmidt was the type of guy, and I know he didn't get it. It wasn't good between him and Travis, but he's also the type of guy that. He needed every level of social interaction that the pandemic took away from every player. And some players reacted to it worse than others. But, you know, so certainly Garland, but my point is Garland's in a better position to take advantage of the city and, and, um, and enjoy That's it. That's true too. Right. But um, nonetheless, I, I just kind of draw those parallels, which makes me wonder about the future of Connor Garland going into the offseason, knowing what this team yeah. has to do from a cap perspective. Well, and, and that's an open question. I think the concern becomes does Garland make the types of plays that help you win when the games get heavy? You know, and yeah, that's, I think concern. the concern. Um, yeah. I mean, it is, a and it's not concern. getting power play time, right? It's and not one not I share though. Like I would love to be another team trading for Connor Garland from a team that thinks he's not able to, you know, like exist in a heavy game. Like I see this guy compete. Um, I'm happy to take that bet. I would be, I would love to pay cents on the dollar for that. Like that's great. That's great. Especially if I have the right type 
of players to put with him. Specifically, you know, a, a larger, like a larger lefty center. <laughs> you know, if I have if I have like a big lefty center, if like you know, uh, the one one name that comes to mind for me, for example, would be a guy like um, like John Tavares or a guy like Sean Monahan. Like sort sort of like a plodding center who doesn't need to carry the puck a ton, but can win battles in the middle of the ice. Uh, you know, Philip Deneau would be another name that comes to mind, and and we have heard some links with the Kings. Like those types of guys, guys who can score, they have a shot, they you know are a warden in the middle of the ice, but they don't need to carry the puck to be effective offensively. That's like the perfect fit for Garland. If I'm one of those teams and the Canucks don't think Garland's the type of guy who can perform in the Western Conference playoffs, like yes. That to me is an opportunity, opportunity all day. And I'm always nervous when the team I cover finds themselves in a situation like that, because I I just always worry that it's a precursor to a lopsided trade. Yeah, I mean, if they're just trying to move the money, it could go that way. And that'd be unfortunate because I think there's value there. And I think there's value to his contract here, right? But uh, we'll see what happens over the next 14 games, whether or not he can give them uh, even more of a reason to keep him. Because you, you get the sense he's not necessarily a Jim Rutherford type of player, but We'll find out because I just get the sense that that deal, that contract, that player is so much more movable than the defensemen that are anchoring this team, this team salary cap now, right? Um, so if you've got to make moves, I think that's going to be an easy one to free up $5 million, even though it doesn't necessarily make you better. Um, a couple of other things I wanted to get into as far as the forwards were concerned, because when he was asked about uh, Horvat and others like Boudreaux said, look, I don't want to get into every player and break them down individually. Our forwards collectively did not play well. One of the things that's been standing out to me is the absence of Tyler Mott. And not that Mott was going to be the difference as to whether or not this team made the playoffs. I think many people viewed him as an expendable asset. And I don't think anybody can criticize that they wanted to get something back for a pending UFA. And if a fourth round pick was all they could get, then so be it. Um, But that third line or the fourth line, which became the third line with Lamico and Highmore was so effective for this team. And the Deeply biggest, missed. The biggest thing we noticed when Bruce Boudreaux took over was how much this team got aggressive on the forecheck. And it was that line in particular. And that one player was perfect for Boudreaux's style. So in a sense, and I know Highmore's hurt, but in a sense that losing Mott took an entire line away, which was becoming a big part of this team's identity. Yeah, I mean, a line that was probably their best forward line going, to be totally honest with you. Certainly their most settled. Most consistent. Most freq- and well, their most frequently used. So, yeah. and, th- and now you're without Mott and you're without Matthew Highmore, who's now week to week. And La- but Lamico's not the same player either, right? Like he hasn't been able to just pick that up with other guys. Well, sometimes I, on the wing, sometimes at center. What would have been outrageous. I mean, Tyler Mott was driving that line. I don't think there's a lot of debate about that. Um, sure. Or there shouldn't be. So, and you know, I like Matthew Highmore too. I- I've been one over. I'm on the Matthew Highmore train. I think he's a really good player, but well, a really good player. I think he's a really good depth piece, um, especially at his contract value. But the fact remains that, yeah, I don't know that there's been a lot there for the Canucks bottom six. I think Nick Patan has done well, like all things considered. I think Nick Patan's come in and played. He's given them credible NHL minutes. I think Vasily Podkolzin has, has raised his game and that's it. That's kind of it from what I'm seeing out of the bottom six right now. Lockwood had a moment, like he burst through the zone and had a backhand chance in the first period, used his speed well. Good stuff. They need more of that. Um, But we haven't seen the big hits. I think there's some uh, growing pains. If you were hoping that Lockwood would be prepared to step into Tyler Mott's shoes, which was never a fair expectation. Um, 
you know, I think you've had that viewpoint rather roundly uh, disabused over the course of this um, this stretch. And yeah, I mean, it does leave the Canucks really thin, really thin at forward. And that's and that's where the St. Louis Blues, I think, have have a huge edge against them. And that's a tough matchup for them. And I think it's the same when you talk about how they're going to match up with uh, with the Golden Knights, too. I mean, the Golden Knights are down like I don't know how many um, I don't know how many forwards they have on IR right now, but it seems like an endless list of them. And yet when you look at Vegas and you consider that, you know, they've got you know, Chandler Stevenson and Yanmark still on their third line, even with all the bodies that they're missing, <laughs> right? Um, you know, that that their second line still comes at you with Carlson and, and Marsh So and Keegan Colasar. Um, you know, that's a team with some ability. That's a team with some depth here. And and I think that's gonna make for a tough matchup when the Canucks face them back to back because Vancouver's just not getting enough out of their out of their bottom six. I I actually wonder if you might be forced to separate Pedersen and Horvat and play Pedersen, Horvat and Miller all on different lines. I, I, I sort of think that's where, where you're at uh, just in terms of manufacturing, like you, you need to find a way to manufacture sort of three lines. I, I'd probably go with something like pairs and go like Garland Horvat, you know, um, I, I mean, Pedersen, I don't know. Besser. Well, yeah, Pedersen, Besser and Miller Pearson. Right. And then, and then maybe, yeah, Garland, Horvat, Pedersen, Besser, Miller Pearson and then, you know, Pod Colson with uh Pod Colson, Chase on, and honestly, probably Nick Patan um filtering up and down in in those roles, at least until Highmore and Hoaglander get back. And it's not ideal, but I don't I don't see where your other I don't I don't I don't think this top six bottom six is going to work against Vegas and St. Louis and if it doesn't work against Vegas and St. Louis that's your season yeah there's no doubt and there's no obvious answer in the minors at this point and you know Brad Richardson has kind of been what we expected from Brad Richardson where he can just kind of give you a few minutes uh you know at 37 years of age but yeah it's a it's a problem I mean do you get the sense that um either one of those two guys is going to be back anytime soon Highmore or Hoaglander because Hoaglander is the one piece they miss in terms of just having one of those lines be able to have a third if you know what I'm saying well, an interesting note is that Hoaglander joined the team in St. Louis. That's positive. Yeah, so that seems positive. He didn't skate, though, at the morning skate, but he must have come to get some work in. So Hoaglander joined the team in St. Louis. So did Highmore stay seems, with the team? Or did I'm, they send Highmore him back? never went home, and, uh, and Kyle Burroughs seems to be getting close. Um, you know, you may end up, I, I mean, you may end up going, uh, like, I honestly would very strongly consider separating those guys separating you know going with the three pairs that i laid out right and then dressing 7d your fourth line becomes richardson lamico and you're sort of cycling um you know your top six guys through that line so you're trying to max miller garland Pedersen, horvat besser's ice time by giving them additional shifts and pearson with that um with that fourth line you play Brad Hunt, you bring Kyle Burroughs into the lineup, you play 7D. I honestly think that's probably really? Vancouver's best bet at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's if you're that reliant on your top six, you know, if you play 7D, one thing it does is it gives your top guys more minutes because you have to double shift them. Yeah, it'd be tough to argue. That's the whole logic of uh, of the jo- of the John Cooper play, which is the 7D play, and then Kucherov and Point and Stamkos and 
Sorelli cycle through on a line with like Maroon, historically like Maroon and Verhage, right? Um, that's how the Lightning won their first cup. They didn't do it as much the second time out. But I, I mean, I think for a Canucks team, when you're looking at this bottom six and what they can achieve and what they achieved on this road trip, I mean, I think it's something you have to strongly consider. Yeah, they're running out of options. There's no doubt. And they're going to have to ride these guys so that they can prevent the death march as long as humanly possible. But uh, we are getting there because they've only got they got 12 games left and they can't afford more than or sorry, 14 games left and they can't afford more than a couple of losses here the rest of the way. So yeah, two, been two t- losses. They can afford two losses and still get to um, 96. Two, two regulation three, losses. Yeah, three losses and they can still get to 95. So that I mean, that's where we're at. And I don't know that 95 gets it done. Honestly, I don't know that 96 gets it done. So um, even even with that, it might not be enough. And of course, I'm now I, I'm now a believer on the mortal lock. It's not my prediction, but I'm now a believer on the mortal lock. The Canucks end up seven, four, and three over the balance, ninety points exactly. All right. Well, um, that's it for this episode of the Vancast. Our show returns on Wednesday. We're gonna have a post game live room again after the Canucks host. The St. Louis Blues, that should be a lot of fun. I mean, we we are getting into the live rooms. They're they're great. The VIPs come correct with great questions. Juggy drops by sometimes. Sean W. makes great points. I've, like, ripped off some of his points in, in, in work, subsequent work. So the VIPs are coming correct, joining the rooms, asking great questions. We love it. We love it. We have so much fun interacting with everybody, and we'll do it again post-game on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and don't forget to leave a rating and a review. And right now, you can get annual subscriptions to The Athletic for just $1 a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. We'll see you tomorrow night, folks.